Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. We are in Kansas this week, right? Kansas? Yep, Kansas. Good, I wasn't wrong. <laughs> it's always good to know where you're going and where you've been. I always get it confused with Arkansas because they are too close in spelling. Oh, that's true. Yeah, way different in pronunciation. That's very confusing. Yeah, because uh, when I was looking at my story, I'm like, what state are we in? Arkansas? I think it's Arkansas. I'm like, no, I remember this list of stuff from when I was looking for my Arkansas story. We already did Arkansas. We must be in Kansas. (laughs) Uh, Kansas. I just think of two things, really, when I think of Kansas. Well, the Wizard of Oz. Exactly. The Wizard of Oz, 100%. And pretty much flat prairie land. Like that, like when I think of like America's Great Plains, I immediately think of Kansas. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Because it is like the flattest state I've ever seen. <laughs> Have you driven through or been to Kansas before? Yes, once. And it was very, very, very flat the entire time. Well, then there you have it. Surprisingly, its nicknames aren't the flat state, which I mean, I feel <laughs> like they, they would get into a fist fight with some of the other states like Nebraska. So. <laughs> But uh, the unofficial nickname for Kansas is the Wheat State or the Jayhawker State. And then the official state name is the Sunflower State, which I think Sunflower is Sunflower State. Fitting. Okay. Yeah. I can see that. Uh, Kansas is pretty agricultural. It has some of the highest yields of wheat, corn, sorghum, and soybeans in the country. Its anthem, its state anthem is kind of delightful. It's home on the range. Oh, okay. I can see that too. Right? Who doesn't? Who doesn't love that? Um, the name Kansas actually comes from one of the many Native American tribes who settled in the area long before it was ever discovered by European settlers. And that was the Kansa tribe who actually okay. lived along the Kansas River and also gave the river its name. That sounds like it makes sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. While the largest and most well-known city in Kansas is Wichita, which is just a cool, fun word to say. I love it. Wichita. It really is. And kudos to uh, to the White Stripes for using it in a song. Agreed. Agreed. If I ever uh, have a dog or something, I would totally name it like, Wichita because it's just a badass name. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, I think of, uh, wasn't that What's-Her-Face's name in Zombieland? Oh, yeah, you're right. That's right. She was Wichita. I dig it. Uh, the actual state capital, though, I guess is Topeka. Which makes sense. Topeka, yeah. Kansas. I've heard that in like the uh, Animaniac State Capital songs that my wife knows by heart still. Which oh, I yeah, that's right. I forgot about those. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. What other fun facts about Kansas? Well, apparently it used to be very bloody. Have you ever heard of the term bleeding Kansas, Eden? No, I have not. That was a term invented by the New York Tribune editor Horace Greeley. I know him. Yep, and I know his name as well. Uh, and he was in one of my stories. He was, he was. I know um, basically Greeley made up this term, Bleeding Kansas, as a way to describe the conflict that popped up when the U.S. government decided to allow residents of Kansas to vote whether it would enter the Union as a free or a slave state. Oh. Yeah, and things got very, very violent, and this really just kind of set the stage for the impending civil war, so... Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Did you know that helium was invented in Kansas? I did not. Yep, apparently two, I guess it wasn't invented, it was discovered, because you can't really invent elements. Invent an element. (laughs) (laughs) I invented science. uh, Hello, would you like to meet my invention, science? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, in 1905, two chemistry professors at the University of Kansas discovered and named helium. Okay. And we've been talking in funny, high-pitched voices ever since. I, I, I was about to say, when they discovered it, were they talking like that? Probably. Be like, Charles, your voice is really high suddenly, is it? <laughs> we did talk a little about The Wizard of Oz already, but apparently, while the book Wizard of Oz doesn't specify Dorothy Gale's hometown, the city of Liberal, Kansas, decided in 1981 that it would claim the honor, and they basically transformed this historic farmhouse they had in the city into Dorothy's house. That's cool. Yeah, it's cool. It's like everything is like decked out like the Wizard of Oz. There's a tornado simulation room. Ooh. Um, There's a yellow brick road on the house property. And get this. All the tour guides dress in blue and white gingham. Oh, great. (laughs) 
amazing. Some other famous folks who came from Kansas other than Dorothy Gale include Kirstie Alley, Melissa Etheridge, Amelia Earhart, and the Harlem Renaissance poet Langston Hughes. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. You'll like this, Eden. I know you said when you were driving through Kansas, it was very flat. Yes. Well, then you're also probably familiar with the saying that Kansas is as flat as a pancake. Mm-hmm. Well, in 2003, a bunch of scientists got together and decided to use a micro laser to test out this saying to see if Kansas truly was flatter than a pancake. They used this micro laser to make a topographical map of an IHOP pancake, and then they compared that to a topographical map of Kansas. Oh, my God. Wow, that's not surprising, but I mean, wow, still wow. But here's the great part. So when they compared the digital digital model of the state's elevation, they did, in fact, find out that Kansas is indeed flatter than a pancake. (laughs) (laughs) But they actually did some additional studies, and they found out there's actually six other states, uh, including Florida, Illinois, North Dakota, that are actually flatter than Kansas. Really? Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So those are my uh, my fun facts about the sunflower state. Well, thank you for that. They're very interesting. I did not know most of them. I know. The things you learn. And, you know, the others that I did know just confirm my suspicions about Kansas. <laughs> that it is, in fact, <laughs> right. flatter than a pancake. All right. Well, I have a story for you, and it's a doozy this week. My story for this week takes place in Emporia, Kansas. Emporia is the county seat of Lyon County and has a population of 24,916 people and an area of 12.11 square miles. It's in the east central portion of Kansas and is 108 miles southwest of Kansas City. It was the first place to celebrate Valentine's Day in the United States in 1953. How romantic. Yeah, right. This seems to be a big traffic hub, too, since it connects with five different highways. Wow. There's I-35, I-335, K-99, US-50, and the Kansas Turnpike, all in this city. Hmm. If you're looking for things to do here, however, you don't need to take one of those highways somewhere else because Emporia has got you covered with some very cool events. The second Saturday in September of every year, they host the Great American Market, which is like a big flea market type deal. They sell antiques, collectibles, crafts, and food. And I love stuff like that, so I would love to check this out. I know I love a good swap meet. The, the things you find and like just like the neat like old stuff you can see is amazing. Oh yeah. Uh, so if you are into frisbee golf or froth, as the <laughs> kids are calling it, <laughs> froth, <laughs> froth, just sounds dirty. <laughs> um, it does. Uh, they host one of the largest tournaments here called Dynamic Discs Open. Hmm. There's also something called The Taste, which I don't have too much information about, but I do know that people from all over the state do attend and visit local breweries, wineries, and distilleries in the city. So that also sounds like fun. That does sound fun. And then finally, we have The Dirty Konza, which is not some weird sex thing like it sounds, although I did not cross-reference that with anything on Urban Dictionary, so who knows? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's the Rusty Trombone and it's the Dirty Sanchez. (laughs) Yeah. So it's actually a gravel bike race through the Flint Hills, which starts in Emporia. And uh, you can choose to do either 25, 50, 100, 200, or 350 mile race. So if you're really into biking, that is held the first weekend after Memorial Day. Wow, that sounds super cool, actually. Oh, yeah. Uh, It's also home to a crazy murder story that I'm going to tell you about today that shook the city of Emporia to its core. Mm. This is the murder of Sandy Bird. Hmm. I don't think I've ever heard of Sandy Bird. I hadn't either, and I'm glad I did now. Uh, So we're going to start our story today in 1982 when Sandy and her husband Tom moved to Kansas from Arkansas, where Tom was offered a job as a pastor at a local Lutheran church. They were both 32 from what I could tell, and they both seemed to be pretty smart. Tom had two master's degrees in theology, while Sandy had a master's of her own in mathematics. And once they moved to Emporia, Sandy began attending Emporia State University, which is one of two remaining colleges in the city. 
Uh, she was going for a degree in computer mathematics, which I don't think I know exactly what that means. Hmm, computer mathematics. Sounds like it was something that maybe you would have before like programming became a really big yeah, thing. That's what I'm assuming too. Cause this was the early eighties. Yeah. So computers weren't like they are now. Uh, they're both seen as very energetic people. And Tom was said to be quite charismatic. He ended up doing a lot for his, for the church that he was in charge of then. And within just one year of him being there, he got a lot of new members into the congregation He also opened a daycare center at the church and created volleyball and softball teams as well. So by all accounts, Tom was like a big sports fan, Mm -hmm. which shows with making two church sports teams. For sure, yeah. He did long distance running back in college, and he still would run every day. He was also on a basketball team in town. Uh, It was through the softball team at church that Tom and Sandy became friends with another married couple named Marty and Lorna Anderson. They all seemed to get along pretty well, and Tom ended up hiring Lorna on as his secretary. And uh, the Andersons had four children, while the birds had three of their own, so, you know, their kids could probably play together or whatever. Now we're going to fast forward a little bit here to the morning of July 17th, 1983, which is when tragedy would strike the Bird family. That morning, police find Sandy's station wagon beneath the Rocky Ford Bridge, and in the river and her body was beside it mm. and invest after investigating the scene sandy's death was determined to be accidental they had worked out a theory that she had missed a bend in the road which caused her to careen down the embankment and into the river according to what i found from the los angeles times okay interesting it was sad and it was tragic but it was just deemed an accident and everyone thought that was the end of it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but then four months later police found something that blew everything that they thought they knew out of the water remember me mentioning the other couple tom and uh sandy were friends with Mm. marty and lorna i do indeed well just four months after sandy supposedly ran her car into the river they find marty shot to death on a mostly isolated stretch of road in gary county which is the county northwest of Lyon. It doesn't exactly border it, but it's pretty close. Okay. I'm going to stop with my story for a minute, and I know I'm leaving you guys in a bad spot, but hear me out for a minute, please. I looked at a county map of Kansas to see where these places were situated, and my eyes were not prepared for some of the worst state nonsense I have ever freaking witnessed. (laughs) Kansas is like a big square made up of a million baby squares when looking at a map. Mm Mm-hmm. It made it really, really difficult to even tell what I was looking at since Kansas apparently has 105 counties. No one needs that many counties. (laughs) I mean, you're not wrong, but I feel like that's just good old Midwestern city planning for you. It's it's nuts. It looks so weird. I was like, what am I I reading? I can't (laughs) see any of this. How many of them are there? Okay, so this times this. Oh, my God, there's 105. Yeah, it was nuts. So that was my true horror story for the day. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But back to my story. Uh, Like I said, they find Marty shot to death on this road. So they decide to ask his wife about it, who was at the scene. According to Lorna, the two were driving down the road and she started to feel sick. So she pulled over and she ran out into a nearby field to throw up. Mm -hmm. But in the process, she lost her car keys. So then she says that she called for Marty to help her look for them. And here's where it gets crazy. Lorna told police that at this point, there's suddenly this man who comes out of nowhere in a ski mask, shoots Marty twice and walks away, I guess. Uh, okay. Like the first record scratch for me was like, she lost her keys. <laughs> like, what? Yeah. Okay, Sure. Yeah, I'm I'm not going to lie to you and try to make this part more mysterious than it actually is because it's blatantly obvious that Lorna is lying her ass off at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sheriff didn't really believe her, but there wasn't really enough to charge her yet anyway, so they let her go for right now. Lorna, you're in danger, girl, because you cannot tell a lie. No. Then even more suspicious stuff happens four days later when Tom Bird comes to her defense saying that she didn't do it and that she's being completely truthful, which makes Tom look pretty shady, too, since his wife just died four months ago and the two had been spending a lot of time together. Mm -hmm. 
It turns out that Lorna had quite the reputation around town. She was known to have had multiple affairs and talked about divorcing Marty a while back. And uh, in Kim Rico fashion, friends of Lorna's were also like, yeah, well, she did joke a few times about how she was going to kill her husband. (gasps) Yeah. Yeah, Lorna, you're not very good at this. So to say their marriage had been strained would have been putting it very mildly, but they weren't the only ones having marital issues. Apparently before Sandy's death, she and Tom were having their fair share of problems too. They were both very stressed between taking care of their three children uh, and both of them having very busy full-time jobs. Okay. She was a professor at a local college by this point. Um, and it got so bad that friends of Sandy's remember her telling them that she felt like her husband didn't love her anymore. That's really sad. Yeah. It should not come as a shock to anyone that there was a little more going on between Lorna and Tom than just friendship at this point. <laughs> the two of them had been having an affair since the spring of 1983 after she had become his secretary, which, I mean, at least if you're going to commit adultery, be a little more original than your secretary. Like, really? I know, like a pastor caught like with his secretary, it just seems like the setup for a really bad joke. Oh, yes. So Lorna, when asked about the affair later, she said, I had a real problem not feeling good about myself. Tom was very supportive, very encouraging. He told me I was not what he needed in a wife, but he could make me into what he needed. Wow. <laughs> that just like, that sounds like, like freaking... Abuse 101. I know. Like, what? What? Like, what a jerk. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Okay. So, great start to your relationship. The police were also able to find out that this wasn't the first time Lorna had plotted her husband's murder. (laughs) Lorna, girl. Yeah. (sighs) So, the first time was two months before Sandy's death, but I don't have any information on that one. I wasn't able to find anything. Uh, This one was two months after the death of Sandy, where she paid a building contractor $5,000 to kill her husband. The police were also able to find out that the money came from Tom and was part of Sandy's life insurance. Mm -hmm. So I should also mention that the contractor Lorna hired to kill Marty, as well as the contractor's brother, both had previously had affairs with Lorna. Okie dokie. So basically, she's just getting her old boyfriends. <laughs> yes, to kill her husband. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, yeah, police were able to find out about the affairs between Tom and Lorna from a number of sources since it seemed to be local gossip that they were together since Lorna is just not very good at hiding things as we have gathered. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They also found love letters the two had written each other. Lorna. Yep. Ugh, girl. So they found two cards. From Tom in Lorna's bedroom. One said, I love you and I'm confident in the future, and that makes the present okay. So when these letters were brought to Tom's attention, he actually said, I meant the Christian kind of love, not the romantic kind. What? Yeah, sure, Tom. Like, how do you feel that you can get away with that? Like, I... no one's buying it. Yeah, that's pretty like this. He's clearly like, I don't know. He's a piece of work, let me tell you that, for one. Oh, yeah. Just like, oh, yeah. Wow. And it just, it always amazes me that it's a freaking pastor, you know? But it's like only a pastor would have a, a, an ego that big to be like, well, these people oh, believe what yeah. I tell them anyway, so I'm just going to say this. Like, exactly. Mm-hmm. No, thank so, you, So, for Marty, they were both charged with solicitation, and it actually took five years for the murder charges to be brought up. I don't know why. I couldn't find much on it. Uh, I do know that Lorna pled guilty to the solicitation. I don't know about Tom in that case, though. Huh. So finally, with the solicitation charges and the knowledge of the affair, that's when they knew that they had to reopen the Sandy Bird case and look at a few things a little more closely with eyes that were just a little more open than before, knowing what they know now. So I'm going to give you a rundown of what had happened on the night leading up to Sandy's death. She had just gotten a promotion at work, uh, according to the Los Angeles Times article that I read, and she and Tom wanted to go out and celebrate. So they decided to go out to a dinner and a movie before briefly returning home at 930, where Sandy went back into the home and grabbed a bottle of whiskey for Tom and a bottle of cold duck, which is like wine, apparently. I'd never heard of it. Okay. Yeah. 
so she grabbed that for herself before leaving again and telling the babysitter that they would be back by 10.30. She never returned home. So they exhume her body and find that she was hit in the back of the head with a blunt object and died from a blow to the back, which they think is from when she fell into the river. Okay. So obviously, they start looking at Tom as a solid suspect, and here's where things get weird. Tom tells all these stories that just don't make too much sense with the already established timeline from the babysitter. He said after they left the house again at 9.30, they went to his church office to drink, where he says Sandy left to go back to her office at the university, and he stayed after to work on his sermon. This strikes me as untrue, because why would Sandy even go to the school if they left at 9.30 and they said they'd be back at 10.30? Mm -hmm. Also, it seems a little weird to have a drink and then go to work, but I mean, it also seems weird to be drinking in a church, but I don't (laughs) judge. Yeah, I mean, he's already done a lot of other unpastorly things, so... What else is new for Tom? Exactly. So, supposedly, she was supposed to, like, pick him up later after. And uh, he told them that she just dropped him off at the church and that he went running, which is apparently what he normally did so he could think about the next day's sermon. This also seems weird given the timeline, and since it seems to contradict what he previously said, unless my research is wrong, which who the hell knows because it might have misled me somewhere. I'm not infallible, even if I want to believe I am. (laughs) But yes, those are two very conflicting things that he said. Also, the babysitter said that when Tom came back home, he was still wearing his suit and tie, which seems weird if he went for a run. But again, that's all very circumstantial. So between the time Sandy supposedly left the church uh, and midnight, Tom had already called the police several times to report his wife missing. But the babysitter also says that he called her around midnight asking if Sandy was there. Why would you call the police before checking to see if your wife was at home? It makes zero sense. Yeah, agreed. So the theory for prosecutors was that he did change into his running clothes, killed Sandy, and then changed back because the clothes were covered in blood, which makes sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. that does make sense as I think about it. It was also weird when they told him the next morning that his wife had been found dead. Because when they told him where she was, he said, what was she doing out there? We'd never go out there. Oh, where is it? Uh, so Tom's a shitty liar, too. He and, oh, yeah. He and Lorna are made for each other, apparently. They are. It's a match made in hell, I'll tell you that. So the officer who found her said that he felt weird about finding her body from the start since it didn't look like the car even tried to stop. Hmm. So apparently when he told the sheriff about his suspicions of what happened, he was told to let it go because, quote, who would want to kill a preacher's wife, end quote. Uh, the preacher? <laughs> Yeah, like, I'm sure lots of people, anyone can want to kill anybody. It's not like, you know, you're in the church, so therefore you are immune to people wanting to kill you. There were also more, like, circumstantial evidence linking Tom to the car, since Sandy was only 5'1", and the seat was pushed too far back for her to have been driving. She had appeared to have been, like, ejected from the car, though her friends said that she always wore her seatbelt, and Something else that was weird because this contradicts Tom's one story and supports the other, uh, and I think also might contradict the babysitter's story, is that the blood alcohol test that was done on her uh, had her being sober at the time of the crash. Interesting. Yeah. So now, Bird was convicted of murdering his wife and sent to prison for life. But it's kind of weird because usually something like this wouldn't even go to trial as far as I know because they have a lack of hard evidence. Right. They have a shit ton of circumstantial evidence, but no hard evidence. So he's since tried to get a new trial because of that, but it hasn't happened yet. And um, there are people out there that still do believe that he's innocent. So one more scandalous thing uh, that I found out about the trial was that the contractor Lorna paid to kill her husband testified in court that Tom had said, quote, I am a man of God and I'm going to kill Martin Anderson, end quote. I don't know about you, but that seems a little bit much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
that seems like he's making some shit up right there. Yeah. So no one's a good liar in this story. Um, so Tom has still not admitted to anything and still maintains his innocence and says that he thinks his wife was either driving carelessly or that she committed suicide, which doesn't seem right to me, but I don't know. He also says the babysitter's lying about pretty much everything or misremembering. He says that after he took his run, he didn't change back into the suit and tie and that he had changed it to a polo shirt, but we don't know that that's the case at all. Um, he also says that her timelines are all messed up. But that's what you would say if you were trying to hide the fact that you killed someone. So Exactly. Um, there was a TV miniseries made about this murder, which some people also say they think is the reason that Tom is still in jail because people are taking the movie as fact. Interesting. Yeah, it's called Murder Ordained, and it stars Joe Beth Williams as Lorna. Oh. Terry Kinney as Tom, Terrence Knox as Marty, and Annabelle Price as Sandy. The weird thing is Joe Beth Williams is the only one of those names on the actual poster for this because I guess people just don't know who the other main characters actors. Uh, Kathy Bates is also in it. So now I really kind of want to see it, though. Oh, my. I just Googled it and it's like a very young Kathy Bates. Oh, yeah, because it was 87. Yeah. So playing a lady cop, which is or maybe a reporter. But all right. I'm into this. Eden. We can we can. We can stream. We this. can try to track it down. Yeah. <laughs> oh wow! I looked and it didn't seem to be on streaming anywhere. It has quite the cast: Keith Carradine, mm-hmm. John Goodman. Oh, I didn't know John Goodman was in it. Yeah, he plays someone named Hugh Rayburn. I wonder who that is. Oh. Mm. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I love old TV movies because they're always bad. Oh, so do I. Yeah, it's from 87. It's probably terrible. And I. <laughs> the hair alone is probably terrifying. Oh, yes. One more thing that I want to add before wrapping this up is some information on Lorna. She was sentenced to 15 to life for her part in her husband's death, but she got parole. And as of 2014, she's no longer even on parole. So she is a free woman. Wow. So L- Lorna got out before Tom. Yep. She's free to continue on her affairs all she wants, I guess. <laughs> Which is interesting because it almost kind of like sounds like, you know, maybe she like, okay, up until she started having an affair with Tom, it sounds like while she would threaten to kill her husband, like she never would really do it. And I almost, I guess none of the other guys were, you know, good enough it. for maybe, or maybe it was one of those things where it's like, he was just that right kind of pushy asshole who was maybe. like, Let's I do mean, it. Tom can make her into what he needs. Exactly, and he needs a murderess. (laughs) So what did you think of this completely wacky story, Nicole? I mean, I feel like our time going through the Midwest so far has just been, you know, a lot of horny people, a lot of horny Christians, and that the easiest way to leave a marriage is to murder your spouse, apparently, other than, you know, just getting plain old divorced like normal people. Oh, God. In the movie, there's like a line – where Tom says to Lorna um, that m- was talking about like murder versus divorce. Mm-hmm. And he says that murdering them is the lesser of two evils. What? Yeah. That is like the literal opposite, Tom. I know, but it's not actually him. It's, you know, the script. Now which I can is apparently very poorly written. I mean, I can understand why his lawyers were like, he's unfairly prejudiced. Like, well, this came out after he was convicted. Okay. But, but yeah. So it's just like the problem would be like him getting a new trial, basically. It's yes, kinda... exactly. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, since they the... think that that's why no one's been able to have like you know his appeals. You know his appeals have always been overturned. Well, you know what, Tom? It could be just that you're guilty of sin. Oh, it definitely seems that way. Because like if you think about it, like if you can't stream it, no one's ever, <laughs> no one in yeah. living memory is going to know what this TV movie is. Exactly. Like I don't remember it coming out. I don't remember hearing about it ever i have never even heard about this case until now so maybe it was just big in kansas maybe everything's bigger in kansas i I sure sure okay we'll go with that they'll (laughs) they'll steal texas's thing my sources for this week were wikipedia hutchnews.com latimes.com emporiagazette.com ljworld.com orlandosentinel.com and imdb.com to find out who was that on that cast of that movie. 
Nice, nice. Well, thanks for that story, Eden. Absolutely. I guess we are going to take a short break and we will be right back with Nicole's story and the news. And we're back. And I have an interesting news story for you guys. Excellent. This one, this next headline I can totally relate to. It comes from Insider and it is... The Utah woman who was found living in a national forest after disappearing five months ago wanted solitude and isolation, sheriff's deputy says. I remember hearing about this on the news, but I don't think I read anything about it. I'm excited you're going to cover this. Yeah, yeah. It just, I was like, you know what? I completely agree. I would do the same thing. (laughs) Uh, So a woman was found alive in a Utah national forest on Sunday after going missing for nearly six months had said that she wanted solitude and isolation, a sheriff's officer spokesman told the Washington Post. The unnamed 47-year-old woman was found living in a tent in the Diamond Fork area of Spanish Fork Canyon and told officials she was living off foraged moss and grass, according to a Monday press release from the Utah County Sheriff's Office. Wow. Yeah. The woman was first noticed missing November 25th, when park workers found her car in a nearby campground parking lot as they were closing a road for the winter. An initial search for the woman proved fruitless, but on Sunday, a sheriff sergeant returned to the area with a nonprofit aerial search organization to search for the woman using a drone. The drone crashed on one of the first passes, and when the sergeant and the drone pilot went searching for the device, they happened upon the woman's tent, the statement said. The woman was in a weakened state and was taken to a hospital for a mental health evaluation, the statement said, but officials were impressed by her ability to weather the winter alone. Mm-hmm. I don't know why you would choose to do this in winter, but okay. She did not plan exceedingly well for such a long period during harsh winter months, but she was resourceful, Sergeant Spencer Cannon, public information officer for the Utah County Sheriff's Office, told The Post. Cannon added that the woman told officials she wanted solitude and isolation. In the original press release about the woman's discovery, officials said that they learned she might have struggled with mental illness and stressed that while many people might choose not to live in the circumstances and conditions this woman did, she did nothing against the law. Hmm. They said the woman might choose to return to the same area and they would make resources available to her should she decide to use them. Interesting. Yeah, I have a feeling there probably is mental health issues going on there but at the same time can you really blame her for just wanting some goddamn peace and quiet well clearly not you sir no not at all (laughs) that's a very interesting story yeah it does definitely sound like there's some kind of mental health um situation um so hopefully she gets whatever support she needs and yeah i think it's kind of rad that they're like yeah if she comes back whatever we'll make resources we'll make room for her yeah i'm like all right that's cool (laughs) that's really cool All right. So, Nicole, you have a story for us. I do. I do. So, for my story, we are heading to Hanover, Kansas. It's near the northern state border with Nebraska. The city of Hanover covers a square mile in area and is situated along the Little Blue River. It's home to 682 residents, making it the second most populous town within Washington County. The economy of the area is very driven by agriculture and the countryside surrounding the city is filled with a bunch of small family farms. Now, during the 19th century, the area that eventually became Hanover had a significant Native American population with the Pawnee, Kanza, and Kaw tribes, and also the Oto tribes, all living in the surrounding area of Hanover. The first- Whenever I hear Pawnee, I just think of Parks and Rec. Right? <laughs> It's forever claimed Pawnee for me and my brain, too. (laughs) Uh, The first European settlers who arrived in the area started showing up around 1840, 1850. Most of them were recent German immigrants who soon established farmsteads in the area and built a substantial amount of trade with the local tribes. Most of the stuff that I read said that the relationship between the German settlers and the local tribes was relatively peaceful. Uh, Fun fact for you, Eden, because I know you love them. 
I do. The early history of the German immigrants coming to Hanover and their relationship with the tribes there still influences Hanover today. Many of the residents have some portion of Native American ancestry. And up until World War I, most residents of the town spoke German as their first language. Wow. Okay. Yep. Isn't that cool? Yeah, it is. Uh, one of the, those early settlers in Hanover was a man named Garrett Hollenberg, and he established his farmstead along the Little Blue River in the early 1850s. It was actually Hollenberg who laid out the plans for the original town, and he decided to name it Hanover because that was his hometown way back in Germany. Um, he plotted the city out in 1869, about three years before it was officially incorporated. Now, Garrett Hollenberg was put in charge of plotting the town because he basically ended up putting the town on the map literally and figuratively. Okay. He was after he set up his farmstead, which he initially called Cottonwood Ranch because there's lots of cottonwood in that area of Kansas. Cottonwood trees, I should say. He eventually, on his land, developed a grocery store slash mercantile, like a general store, a tavern, and a stagecoach depot. This stagecoach depot was the last thing that opened on uh, his land in 1858. Uh, it became such an important stop for people going out west to California and Oregon that it actually ended up being a hub not only for mail, but for the fabled Pony Express. Okay, yeah. So basically people traveling from the like Missouri going out to California or heading on the Oregon Trail would stop in Hanover because of Hollenberg's farmstead. And that kind of brought more commerce to the area and more settlers in turn started building their farms nearby. Uh, eventually there was a railroad intersection in Hanover that also helped the city to grow. As for Hollenberg and his property, he originally built a one-and-a-half-story rectangle wooden shingled building with a gabled roof and a stone foundation. And his family lived in it and also served as the depot. So there are six rooms inside. Four of them served as the family's residence and their living quarters. One was a shop, and the last one was like a bar-slash-tavern space. And then what he did is the loft area, he basically turned into like a sleeping space for people who are traveling or like any guests who might stop by to visit the family. Oh, cool. Um, over the years, he also started providing other outbuildings. So he set up a stable for horses and he also uh, had a blacksmith come out and set up a blacksmith shop near the station. Um, all of it to basically make it a more enticing place for travelers to come because they could, you know, house their horse and get any kind of horseshoes fixed or any anything they might need fixed from the blacksmith as well as they stayed at the tavern, had a warm meal, that sort of stuff. Cool. So this station, which eventually the Cottonwood Ranch was renamed Hollenberg Station, is going to be our location for today. Uh, it's known on the National Register of Historic Places as the Hollenberg Pony Express Station. And that's because of the station's connection to the Pony Express and also early mail service in Western America. Back in the 1850s, it would take an eternity to get mail out to California. <laughs> and we had a lot. I can imagine why. Yep. Yep. There's a lot more people in California after the gold rush of the 1840s and early 1850s. And if you were to send mail, it would have to go basically overland via stagecoach or on a steamer ship. Steamer ships could take months. Even overland, uh, one of the, the early mail carriers was Butter Butterfield Overland Mail, which was a stagecoach mail service in the U.S. That would take them about three and a half weeks to get your mail to the Pacific coast from the Atlantic. Now... When the Pony Express started up, and are you familiar with the Pony Express at all, Eden? Yes, I am. And it's funny because when I worked uh, for this one company, when I was doing sales, we would sell butane lighters that were filled and you can't like ship those very nicely mm -hmm. because they'll explode. Um, so basically it had to go with something called parcel post, which is a very, very, very slow way to send anything. <laughs> And we used to tell them it's pretty much the Pony Express. <laughs> Which is kind of hilarious because like nowadays, like Pony Express is like considered so slow. 
But back in like the 19th century, it was like the fastest way to get stuff to California. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you didn't have cars. You didn't have anything. You exactly. just had your horses. Exactly. So for folks who aren't familiar with the Pony Express, it was a mail service that basically used a relay of horse-mounted riders. Uh, there would be these Pony Express stations set up usually 10 miles apart. And at each stop, a rider would basically ride up as fast as they could, jump on a brand new horse, leaving everything behind at the station except for the the mail pouch they were carrying with them, and then ride off to the next station. Or sometimes there would be a handoff to another rider. You would just hand them another mail pouch and they would take off. While it's pretty famous, I mean, I think some of the earliest post office office stamps actually featured Pony Express riders, and I think it's something that every kid learns about at some point in elementary school. It only really operated for 18 months. So it ran between April 3rd, 1860 and August 26, 1861. However, it did have a big impact. It reduced travel time to roughly 10 days. So you go from like three weeks to 10 days. It's pretty phenomenal. That's Yeah, that's a big improvement. And here's the other crazy thing. So I was learning more about the Pony Express history. It turns out they only had about 100 or so riders over the course of of the company's existence. But in the 18 months it was in operation, those riders delivered 35,000 letters. Wow, that's a lot. Right? Isn't that crazy? And it was known as the most direct means of communication with California. Uh, Unfortunately, the American Civil War... And the establishment of the first transcontinental telegraph to the West Coast in October of 1861 really contributed to the already sinking financial ship of the Pony Express. I think I read somewhere that they were grossing about $90,000 in 1860s money, but they were spending about $200,000 to operate. So. Yeah. While the Pony Express was an important link between the East and West Coasts of America, The service is probably best remembered for the riders. Uh, The work of a Pony Express rider was extremely difficult. The riders had to be tough, resilient guys, and they also had to be lightweight. Uh, The rule was that the rider could be no more than 125 pounds because they wanted to keep the weight as light as possible on the horse. So combined with the the male, the saddle, the rider, 125 was your cutoff. There is this kind of interesting advertisement. Um, Some sources say that it may not be truly authentic, but I'll read you the description for the Pony Express uh, desired writers. It is, quote, wanted. Young, skinny, wiry fellows, not over 18, must be expert riders, willing to risk death daily, orphans preferred. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Right? Like, uh, sounds like a great gig. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It wasn't the, the best work, But uh, the people who tended to become writers were usually teenage boys. And for a teenage boy in the West, this was a pretty sweet gig if you could survive. Writers were paid $25 a week, which is about $805 in today's money after you adjust for inflation. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of cash for for a kid out there. Um, Like I said, most of the writers were teenage boys. However... The youngest writer, according to legend, was a writer named Bronco Charlie Miller, who started his Pony Express service at just 11 years old. The most famous Pony Express writer probably has to be William Cody, a.k.a. Buffalo Bill. And I think he's probably pretty famous for just his Buffalo Bill Western show and also some of his early exploits, right? Yeah, we know who Buffalo Bill is. Exactly. He actually... He also wants you to put the lotion in the basket. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Buffalo Bill Cody, shall we forever hence be named? (laughs) Yes. Worked for the service when he was uh, just 15 years old. So he's probably the most famous writer. Uh, Other famous Pony Express writers include Robert Pony Bob Halslam, who immigrated from London, England as a teen and was known as one of the bravest and most resourceful riders. Pony Bob was part of the fastest trip the Pony Express ever ran. And it was part of the trip that carried news of Abraham Lincoln's inaugural address. Uh, Pony Bob completed his 120 mile leg in eight hours and two minutes, even though he had been attacked by Native Americans and had a jaw, had an arrow shot through his jaw 
causing him oh, wow. to eventually lose three teeth. That's dedication. Right? Like, I'm like, good for you. Then there was Billy Tate, a 14-year-old Pony Express rider who rode the trail in Nevada near the Ruby Valley. During the Paiute Uprising of 1860, he was chased by a band of Paiute Indians on horseback and forced to retreat into the hills behind some huge rocks. He was able to uh, find cover there, and he ended up killing seven of the Native Americans who were pursuing him in a shootout before eventually being killed himself. When his body was found, it was riddled with arrows, but not scalped. And that was a sign that the Paiutes honored his warrior spirit and honored him as an enemy because they didn't scalp him. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Sadly, a lot of the riders of the Pony Express ended up like Billy Tate. So it's no wonder that people have reported a lot of strange, ghostly riders in and around Hollenberg Station. Now, the station is open today. It is part of the National Registry of Historic Places. It is operated by the Kansas State Historical Society. It has a visitor center, a theater, a gift shop. But probably its biggest claim to fame is all of the weird, strange, horsely-esque ghosts that (laughs) people have experienced there. All right. So it's open yearly um, between March and October. However, most of the supernatural activity tends to take place during the warmer summer months. It's during those months that visitors and staff members have reported hearing things like reverberating hoofs and the sounds of what seems like horses like riding towards the building. And then they'll hear, you know, male voices or some some will say the voices of what sound like teenagers calling for their horse or calling that they're approaching the station. Um, so this, these like horse gallops will be heard day and night. Um, it's just very odd. And people will go outside to see what's happening and there's nothing there. Huh. Weird. Okay. Then there's the actual physical manifestations that people have witnessed. Um, some folks have said they have seen body apparitions of Pony Express riders and they describe them as young men wearing cowboy hats and chaps. Um, sometimes they will actually be on a horse. Other times they will just appear um, standing there and looking. There's one really spooky apparition that pe- several people have reported seeing. And it's basically a young horse rider, um, Pony Express rider, who has arrows sticking out of his back. And he's kind of like, he'll be like seen um, slumped over and like lying on the floor of one of the station bedrooms. Like he's bleeding out and like in agony. So he Ooh, just kind of appears that's- there. Not a fun ghost to have. No, it is not. How would you like that to be your freaking afterlife? <laughs> oh. Yeah, it seems to me um, a lot of the – the because this place has been investigated by several paranormal teams. Most of them tend to think it's these are more residual hauntings and not that's, actual entities. Yeah, that's what I would think too. However, they have identified that there there could be some actual entities there that aren't residual They've gotten a lot of really good uh, positive EVP recordings from these resident spirits, and uh, they most often think that the spirit that you hear the most from is actually the former owner of the station, Garrett Hollenberg. Uh, Hollenberg himself died in 1874, and his family continued to operate the station in the farmstead. Uh, eventually, the station closed once you know the railway came to town, and the farmstead, however, was still in operation up until 1941. People say that Hollenberg's manifestations are very unique. He likes to play tricks on people and he likes to rearrange things. He likes things in a certain oh. order. So he's been known to just randomly move objects inside the building. Um, he will hide various objects as well. So people have talked about, you know, something will be in the uh, – what used to be the tavern and it'll be moved to the rooms that used to be the family residence somehow, even huh, though they're like okay. three rooms away. Very odd stuff like that. They say that most often when you're inside the station, um, you will encounter cold spots. It's very, very common there. Um, there's also a lot of strange noises aside from the horse sounds and people talking. You'll hear sometimes like the dinging of hammers, almost like a blacksmith sort of residual haunting, something like that. Yeah. And then the creepiest thing, the thing we 
never enjoy is that people also say that when they feel cold spots, sometimes they also feel somebody touching their back. Oh, no, no thanks. <laughs> so it seems- Get away from me, creeper. Yeah, I know. I'm like, mm I was good up until that point. I'm like, ghost horsey's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> ghost pervs, not so much. <laughs> so by all accounts- um, Hollenberg, if he is the entity that's that's there and actively moving things, seems to be relatively like harmless, um, nothing too creepy other than the occasional like hand on the back. But um, the other apparitions just sort of appear mostly outside. Um, but yeah, this is something that it's very well known in, in that area of Kansas as a haunted location. And like I said before, several different par- teams of paranormal investigators have visited Hollenberg Station to interact with the spirits or just measure some of the um, activity there. Very cool. So Eden, would you be interested in stopping by and visiting sometime between March or October? Uh, I would, as long as the spirit would promise not to touch me because no, just I have a hands-off policy. (laughs) So they need to respect that. That is fair. That is totally fair. No ghostly touching. Got it. No ghostly touching. Thank you very much. Uh, My sources for this week's story were Wikipedia, Mental Floss, AnomAlien.com, HauntingsAroundAmerica.com, LegendsOfAmerica.com, and SeeksGhosts.blogspot.com. Alrighty. Thank you very much, Nicole. I always enjoy stories about horses, even if they do happen to be ghosts. A ghost horse is fine with me because it's not, you know, creepy. Alrighty, so that is the end of our show for today. If you liked what you heard and you would like to get in contact with us for any reason, you can do so at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. You can stop by our social media sites. We are on Facebook and Instagram at Roadside Horror Show and on Twitter at Roadside Horror. You can go to our website, which is roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. Um, if you're feeling up to it and you have a couple minutes on your your hands, it, we'd appreciate it if you'd rate and review the podcast. It helps us bubble this little independent show up to folks who might also be interested in hearing about some of the true crime and paranormal adventures we've been having on our road trip. We would also like to thank Yox Rocks Designs for our logo and E Massey for our intro and outro music. Until next time, guys. Creep, creep on, creep on. Creepin on. on.